Before I get started here, I want to, on behalf of the pastors, thank this church for praying and serving Bendorf Elementary Church yesterday across the street. There's 700 students, approximately 20 different languages. Um, Believe it or not, it's an at-risk school, so there are certain supplies and necessities that they need that they don't have. Uh, For example, papers and crayons and pencils. And so we as a church, even though we're not a big church, uh, we provide what we can for them every single month. And yesterday was a community project where we helped uh, clean up and clean out their courtyard. And it's literally a day and night type of situation. So I'm grateful. We are grateful for you. Thank you for praying. Thank you for serving. And as a church family, we are heading in the right way. We are serving the Lord, and we're serving our neighbor, and we can't ask for more than that. So thank you for all of you who have served. So before I get started, let me go ahead and uh, pray. So pray with me. Father, we ask you, O God, to help us now. Give us eyes to see the beauty and the worth of the great and awesome Savior, Jesus Christ. Give us a heart that's inflamed for the glory of God. Give us ears to hear the truth of your word by the aid of your spirit. Be with us now, O God. In Christ we pray, amen. How many of us are worried about tomorrow? Or maybe you're married or worried about next week? Or you're worried about next month or even next year? How many of us are worried about the direction of God's people, the church? How many, of us, how many of us are worried about where the nation is going, or the economy, or our job security? Where is the world heading? And so to answer this, we are in Psalm chapter 93. And before I read Psalm chapter 93, it would be fitting for us to hear the words of Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a British Protestant missionary to China. He was known for the Inland China Mission. It was also known as the Overseas Missionary Fellowship. And he gives this wonderful advice about trouble. As Christians, how are we to look at trouble? Quote, let us give up our work our plans, ourselves, our lives, our loved ones, our influence, are all right into God's hands. And then when we have given all over to him, there will be nothing left for us to be troubled about. I think Hudson Taylor was right on when he stated this. As Christians, what do we have to worry about? We can't even control the air that's in our own lungs or the blood that is beating through our heart or even our heartbeat right now. And so why are we concerned about things that we cannot control? And as Christians, we need to give everything to the Lord, even our worries and our concerns and our troubles. Because once we do that, there's nothing to be worried about. So we're in Psalm 93, and the sermon is entitled, The Reigning One. The reigning one, and the main point that I want to get across today is the Lord our God reigns. Let me say that again. The Lord our God reigns. The background on this is in Psalm 91. The psalmist declares that the Lord is my refuge and my fortress. As Christians, we should affirm what the psalmist says in Psalm 91, that the Lord is our refuge and our fortress. And in Psalm 92, the psalmist declares that the Lord's works are great. The Lord's works are great, especially when we think about redemption history, when we think about our great salvation that we have received by God's grace. We're grateful to God that he did not judge our sins as they deserve. Now we're in Psalm 93, And the psalmist describes the reigning one, the one who is sovereign above all 
and is all. When we read about the Psalms, when we really think about the Psalms, it's crystal clear that the psalmist has a relationship with the true and living God. The psalmist says, the Lord is my God. The psalmist says, the Lord is my shepherd. This is something that is real. It's crystal clear. It's tangible. You can't fake it till you make it. This is a real personal relationship with the living God. And before I get started this morning, if you're not a Christian, if you are not a Christian, you need to be a Christian. You need to come to the Lord. But you come to the Lord on His terms. You don't come to the Lord on your terms. You don't tell God what you're going to do for God because in reality, whatever you promise to God, it's going to fail. What God says, we do. And we are to come to Him in humility. God gives grace to the humble, but God opposes the proud. So will you humble yourself and repent before God? You repent of your sins and you trust in the Lord. You believe in the Lord. To repent is not simply saying, I'm turning away from my sin, which is true. But what you're really saying is this, I have a change of mind. Because I have a change of mind, I have a change of thought, I have a change of emotion. Therefore, I have a change of action. I can no longer live this sinful life that God knows about. So I'm turning away from that. And to trust in the Lord is not saying, I believe that God exists. Even the demons believe that God exists. It's much more than that. To trust in the Lord is to say that I believe who God is, and what God has said. And God has said in his word, I give you my one and only son. If you believe in him, you trust in him, you are forgiven. So it's not a matter of just saying God exists. It's a matter of saying, I believe in who God is, and I believe what he has said, and what he has said is true. And I believe it. I have personal hope and confidence in that. The Lord is worthy of your trust, and the Lord is worthy of your allegiance. You are called to trust Him. Now, for those of us who are Christians, if you're a Christian, in today's text we will see five crucial points about the greatness of our God who reigns. And you see this in your bulletin. Number one, He reigns gloriously. We see that in verse one. Number two, He reigns powerfully. That's also in verse one. And number three, he reigns eternally. That's in verse two. And number four, he reigns triumphantly. That's in verse four. And number five, he reigns in truth and holiness. That's in verse five. So in verse one, point number one, he reigns gloriously. It says in verse one, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. The psalmist affirms that the Lord is sovereign, that the Lord has sovereign rule. This Lord has a personal name. His name is Yahweh, and Yahweh reigns. To use the word reigns means that there's somebody who is in royal authority, someone who's in a royal office, the one who has all authority as the king. This is kingly language. What is the psalmist saying? The psalmist is saying is that Yahweh is the king. As a matter of fact, he is saying that Yahweh has always been the king and he will always be the king until, guess what? It never ends. He's eternally the king. He is the king. This is a fixed reality. This is the truth of God's word. To be sovereign is to have all authority, to have legal rule, not just in Las Vegas, not just in the state of Nevada, not just in America. To be sovereign means God has all authority, not only on planet Earth, but in the entire universe. God has all authority. And to be king means the king has a kingdom or a domain. God's domain is unlimited. 
God's domain is the entire universe. And whatever other galaxies are out there, God is king over those galaxies as well. In human history, there have been a great history, a long history of kings. Kings come and go. Kings ascend to the throne, as you read in 1 Kings or 2 Kings. They reign for 5 years. They reign for 10 years. They reign for 25 years. They reign for 40 years. And when they die, their authority dies. And the question becomes, will their kingdom survive? Because the king has died and his authority has died with him. But praise God, that does not apply to our God and king. Our God is sovereign because he's eternal. He can never die. He's not human like you and I. You and I have a fixed born date and we have a fixed death date. God is the sovereign God. His kingship is eternal. And so the psalmist is affirming that our God is the great and mighty God, that he reigns gloriously. If you look at this language, this kingly language, he's robed. He's robed in what? He's robed in majesty. This is kingly attire. This is stately attire. These are clothes that are befitting of a king one who is in royal authority. On September 8th, 2022, just a month or two ago, we understand what this means. When Prince Charles became King Charles. Why? Because his mother died at the ripe age of 96 years old, Queen Elizabeth II. King Charles, when you saw him in his public address, he was not wearing t-shirt, a t-shirt and jeans. He was wearing his royal garb. He was wearing stately clothes, kingly clothes, clothes befitting of a qualified king. And so we understand that when we saw Prince Charles on TV or on YouTube, that he's no longer a prince, but he's a king. He has authority. And what is he going to do? He's going to rule the land. You, can, you notice that as soon as you see what he's wearing. You don't even have to understand England or English to understand that. The king wears royal clothes and his clothing symbolizes who he is and what he will do. So what is the Lord going to do? We see this in point number two now. He reigns powerfully. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. The king or any person who wears clothes understands that if you're going to wear your clothes securely and confidently, you need a belt. Otherwise, things fall off. Otherwise, you look like a mess. And so the psalmist is using Hebrew language or poetry to explain the idea that this belt is a belt that supports. And the idea here is the Lord, our great God, is powerful. He is powerful. Why? Because he's putting on this belt of strength. The Lord is described as a warrior. He's the one who puts on the belt. He's about to take care of business. He's not some sort of feeble man or a weakling. He is the, the almighty God who is mighty and strong. So the idea here is there's a picture of a king, a great king, who's going to battle other kings. But these other kings are simply humans. They're mere humans. They have no chance. There is no chance in the universe for them, these earthly kings, to defeat the great sovereign king, the Lord. You know, when we want to talk about ourselves and we don't want to mention to the other person or identify, identify ourselves as the person who did a certain act, we describe ourselves in the third person. 
right? We say something like, well, I have a friend who has a friend, and this friend did this, right? So it's probably best up front that I just confess that I was the friend, that I did this certain deed. That when I was a boy, I would take a magnifying glass on the, in a hot summer day, and I would look for an anthill. And what would I do with this magnifying glass? I'd put it on the anthill, and I would watch these crispy critters toast. They would burn and die. And some of you think, well, Pastor Rolo, you were just being mean to the ants. Well, I was unsaved. I mean, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> but we need to understand, what can an ant do to the full strength of the sun that we see up in the sky? Nothing. There is no way in God's universe, in God's world, that God could ever fail or lose. That would be like an ant trying to battle the sun. And before we talk about this battle, we need to address the second half of verse 1. It mentions that the world is established. That God established the world. That God founded the earth, and it is stable, not unstable. This is not talking about a perfect world that we live in. This is not talking about a sinless world. This is not talking about a world where there are no problems or trials or tribulations. This is referring to God as creator, who created the world and he's established the world and the world will not be shaken out of place, out of position, because God has all authority and power. God created the world for a reason. In other words, God has decreed that the world will last, and God is directing human history exactly where it needs to go. No matter what happens in this world, no matter what happens in this world in terms of our suffering, our persecution, or whoever's in power, no one is going to shake the established world out of God's hand. And the earth is not stable because of mankind. The earth is stable because of God. God's throne is stable. And because God's throne is stable, his authority is permanent and fixed. And because his authority is permanent and fixed, that this world that we live in, this earth, is stable. It's not going to be shaken out of place. No person or thing will move the earth from God's almighty, powerful hands. There is no one who has more power than our God. So we need to read about this battle now. In verse 3, it says this, The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. We see this repetition. In Hebrew poetry, or in Hebrew language, if the author is going to make a point to the audience, we understand in America we underline certain words and we highlight certain words or we put quotation marks around certain words to remind us, but in Hebrew language, you would repeat a word. He's talking about this flood and the idea here is that the flood normally refers to in the original language of rivers and streams. In some English translations, you'll see the word waves. However, in ancient times, the seas or the floods or the waves refer to forces of evil and chaos. Forces of evil and chaos. From a Jewish perspective, the sea was not a happy place where you go for a vacation and stay at a resort. That's not how the Jews would look at it. The Jews looked at the sea or the ocean as an environment of being unstable of being chaotic. It's the idea of evil is increasing, being tossed to and fro. And so the psalmist is saying that the forces of evil, the forces of chaos are rising. That's the idea. That evil is increasing in the land and in the culture. That evil and chaos are lifting up their voices with a loud roar. What is the psalmist doing? The psalmist is talking about evil in such a way that evil 
is personified. That evil is like a person. That's how they're describing evil. It's like a person. That this person, floods and waves, is so real that they're like people who are evil and hostile to God. That the people, the culture, the world we live in are hostile towards God. This is the battle. This is the battle that's before us. This battle of evil forces symbolized the fixed evil attitude against our God and King. The world we live in hates God. The world we live in does not love God. Either they're going to verbalize their hate towards God, our God, or they're going to show it by their actions or both. And so there's no such thing as neutrality. Neutrality is a myth. Either you love God and His Word and His Savior, or you hate God and His Word and His Savior. There's no middle ground. Neutrality is a myth. When we were born by God's grace, we were hell-bent. We were inclined to do evil. Parents, you know this. Have you ever taught your kids how to lie? No. Your kids are very good. My kids are very good. Our kids are very good at getting what they want. Where there's a will, there's a way. That's the old saying, right? So when it comes to lying, we have never sat our children down and said, child, this is how you lie. This is lying 101 at the college level. No. What we do is we bring the word of God and we teach our kids, child, thou shalt not bear false witness. Child, thou shalt not lie. That's what we actually have to do. Because sin is already in the heart. And so this world we live in hates God as their creator. This is proven by their words and their action. The power of this evil generation cannot compare to the power of our king. As bad as things are in our culture, in our society, in our nation, and in our world, that does not compare to the power of our great king. Let me give you an example, a biblical example. Proverbs 21.1 states, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Did you hear that, dear saint? That the heart of the king is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he literally turns it wherever he wills, according to his goodwill and purposes. The Lord is sovereign. He's sovereign over all these things that cause us hurt and pain and sorrow. The Lord, who is sovereign, is the king over all human pagan kings. Earthly kings, they think. They actually think that they're in control. Yes, they make real decisions. Yes, those real decisions come with real consequences, either positive or negative, blessing or cursing. But yet, we must understand what God's Word says, that God has the power to direct their decisions, good or bad, to accomplish whose purpose in the end? God's purpose. God's perfect, good purposes. We understand this when we read Genesis 50, verse 20, where Joseph tells his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. Amen. Joseph's brothers, they were mean, ugly, vindictive, cold-hearted, selling their own flesh and blood to another people group. He became a slave of that group, but yet God raised him up to be the number two position in the land of Egypt, and God blessed the work of his hands. Why? If you keep reading on, so that many people would live through the famine. But what they meant for evil, God used it for good. God directs the hearts of every person. 
That does not mean we're not responsible to make good decisions. Of course we're responsible to make good decisions. But God directs the decisions to accomplish His good purposes. Let me give you another example. Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. This is Cyrus who's being used as God's instrument to bless God's people. Verse 40, chapter 45, verse 1 says this, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. You have to back up to chapter 39 to understand this. The king of Babylon was a man by the name of King Baladan. And King Baladan sent envoys or ambassadors or representatives from his kingdom, in particular his son, Merodach Baladan, to King Hezekiah of Israel. And when King Hezekiah saw Merodach, in his pride, he made a very poor and costly decision. He decides to bring in these foreigners from another land into the storehouse or the treasuries of God's people. And in the storehouse, King Hezekiah shows these foreigners all the gold, all the silver, all the spices, all the oil, all their weaponry, all their armament. He shows them everything in the storehouse. If you read that verse, there was nothing he withheld. He showed them everything. What was King Hezekiah doing? Well, number one, he wasn't doing the right thing. But number two, more than that, he was making a political alliance with a foreign people who has a foreign god that they worship. This was a political alliance. He made a political alliance with the enemy, with Babylon. He did not, if you read that text, he did not run to the Lord for help. He did not pray to the Lord for help. He did not ask the Lord for help. He didn't bow the knee. He didn't humble himself. And so the Lord prophesied by using the prophet that Babylonian captivity would come because why? They trusted in a false king from a false land that serves a false god instead of the true and living God. There's consequences to that. He made a real decision with real consequences. But now the Lord is going to use this Persian king, Cyrus, to redeem his people or to free his people or to liberate his people out of that land to go back into their promised land to rebuild the temple. And we see this in Ezra chapter 1 and Ezra chapter 6. So what is God doing? God is using this pagan, heathen person to accomplish his perfect purposes in the world. So when the text talks about the anointed one and it identifies it or identifies this person as Cyrus, if we were Jews in that time and we heard the anointed one, we would be thinking automatically the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. But yet in this text, in Isaiah 45, the anointed one is identified as Cyrus. And for Jews to hear that is absolutely shocking to their system. How is this possible that the anointed one is a pagan, a heathen, a Gentile? Yet God sees fit to subdue the nations through this pagan named Cyrus. He's going to loose the belts of these kings. What is he going to do? Remember, the belt is the belt which supports and holds everything in place. And so the Lord is going to use Cyrus to overthrow other earthly kings. What is the Lord going to do? He's going to disrobe them of their royal authority and power. God raises up kings and he brings down kings. That's what it means to be sovereign. God is sovereign in creation. He created the world. 
He didn't need any of our help. He didn't need Adam and Eve's help. Adam and Eve didn't exist, by the way, at that time when God created the world. God is sovereign in creation. God is sovereign in his administration that he raises up kings and he brings down kings. He raises governments and he dismantles governments. You didn't save yourself. God saved you. You didn't run to God. You ran away from God. And God chose us and sought us out. Convicted us of sin. Showed us the beauty and the worth of Christ. And you repented and you trusted in him. So we praise God for that. So King Cyrus is an instrument in the hands of the real king. How then will any human king or authority compare to our king? Who can compare to the true king? If it's true what the Bible says, and it is true that the heart of the king is like water in the hands of God, and God directs the king's heart in any direction that he sees fit for his own glory, then who can compare to this king? Our Lord reigns gloriously. He reigns powerfully. And now, point number three, he reigns eternally. We see this in verse two. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. In verse two, this language of old is explaining that God's rule and God's authority are from times past. That God's royal position is from all eternity from times past if you notice god's royal authority here has no start date has no end date and that's intentional that's intentional in other words god has always been the king if you're looking for the king god is the king He's always been the king. He's the king that rules and reigns right now. He's not the king that will be the king in the future. No, he's the king right now. We will see the full consummation of his kingly rule and authority when Jesus comes back. The full consummation of that. But the king rules right now. Don't keep your eyes on the things that are below. Keep your eyes on the God who is above. Trust what the Word of God says. God has always been the king, and he's the king right now. Isaiah 40, verse 14, talks about the greatness of God. That God has power and authority. Verse 14 of Isaiah 40 starts off with this rhetorical question. Whom did he, referring to God, whom did God consult, and who made God understand? Did God have to consult you and I to learn something? Who made God understand? See, if God had to learn something, God is no longer God. If God has to learn something, God is no longer God. And because God is all-knowing, He's independent. His knowledge is right and perfect. His knowledge is absolute perfect knowledge. He doesn't need to learn. He has no desire to learn. He is the source of all knowledge and wisdom. Text goes on. Who taught him, referring to God, the path of justice, and taught him knowledge. Nobody's taught God justice, why he's holy. His justice stems and connects from his holiness no one has had to teach god god this is good and right this is evil and bad god knows all because he's perfect and holy who's ever taught god knowledge and showed him the way of understanding behold the nations are like a drop in the bucket or a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales Behold, he, referring to God, takes up the coastlands like fine dust. God looks at all the nations of all the entire earth. And he says, all of them put together combined is but a dust. 
You put them on the scale, they weigh nothing. They have no weight. There's nothing they can do apart from God's power and sovereignty. They're just dust on the scales. They're just a drop in a bucket. Think about this. We know what a thimble is, right? If you're in sewing, you put this little piece of metal on your thumb, a thimble, right, to help you as you're using needles. Imagine taking this thimble, this thimble of our lives, and dropping it in the largest ocean in the world, the Pacific Ocean. Now try to find that thimble in the world's largest ocean. It's less than a drop in a bucket. He goes on to say in verse 16, Lebanon, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor is beast enough for a burnt offering. Lebanon was known for their massive cedar trees. If you remember, when King Solomon wanted to build this great temple, where did they get these massive cedar trees? From Lebanon. And it says here that everything that Lebanon has, all the forests of Lebanon would not be enough fuel and its animals of that land would not be enough for burnt offering. What's the idea? The idea is as great as Lebanon is, they do not compare to, great, to the greatness of God. All the nations are nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. There's nothing and then there's less than nothing. It doesn't get any clearer than this. So who can compare to our great God? Who in human history can compare to our great God who has always been the king? Our God reigns, and he reigns now. No earthly power can thwart the hand and the power of the Almighty, our great God and king. All the governments of the world, all the kings in human history, all the prime ministers in human history, all the presidents, all of them put together, if you were to put them in a bucket, cannot compare to the greatness of our God and King. He's the reigning one, and no one can compare to him. He's from old. He's from times past. Meaning forever. If you're a Christian, that should encourage you dear brother and sister in Christ, that the God we serve is the true and living God who's eternal. He's from old, of old, from times past. He has all authority. He has all power. Nothing and no one can snatch us from his hands. He saved us for his own glory, for his name's sake. And that should encourage us that our God is great. One of the greatest hymns I've ever sang in my entire life, we don't sing at this church. Pastor Ed, I hope we'll learn it one of these days and sing it. But it's this hymn, Lead On, O King Eternal. If you've ever sang or heard of this hymn, raise your hand. If you've ever heard of this hymn, okay? Three people, four people, five people out of 150 people. We need to learn this song. Because why it says this in the first stanza. Lead on, O King Eternal, the day of march has come. Henceforth in fields of conquest, your tents will be our home. Though, or through days of preparation, your grace has made us strong. And now, O King Eternal, we lift our battle song. What is this hymn writer saying? He's saying there's a king. And that king is God. And God is eternal. And God leads on. And we are to follow him. Wherever he goes, we follow him. He's the sovereign one. His grace has made us strong. All of God's people should say amen to that. His grace has made us strong through the cross of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord reigns gloriously. Our Lord reigns powerfully and eternally. And now point number four. Our Lord reigns triumphantly in verse four. Mightier than the thunders 
of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Did you see that at the end of verse 4? The Lord on high is mighty. If you can imagine this, let's say all of us are on the beach. We're enjoying a bright, sunny, beautiful day, and all of a sudden the entire sky goes black, and it starts to get windy, and it starts to get cold, and we see these dark clouds start to roll in. We understand that a great storm is coming in, possibly dangerous if there's thunder and lightning. And it's natural to hear the echoes of thunder. It's natural to hear the, or see the flashes of lightning and be afraid. You know, when I stand in the rain, it doesn't bother me. But when I hear the thunder that comes from heaven, and it goes from this part of the world to the other part of the world, and it sounds like the reverberation and the echo is bouncing off of my chest, and I see lightning flashes in the sky, I'm fearful. It's natural to be fearful. But we need to understand the God who created us is the God who created the universe. He's the one who created those thunderstorms and that lightning. Even though it's fearful or natural to be fearful, we should not be fearful of man-made institutions. We should not be fearful of political alliances, which we read about. We were never called by God's design to put our hope and our rest in the things of this world. Yes, God instituted the government, but our hope is not in the government. Our hope is not in political alliances. Our hope is not in man-made institutions. Our hope is in who? The Lord. When we look at Psalm 93 about God being sovereign and we read Matthew chapter 8, it's really an echo of Matthew chapter 8. If you remember, Jesus and his disciples get on a boat and as the boat takes off, Jesus falls asleep and this massive storm rolls in and the waves and the swells are massive and high there's thunder there's lightning and the disciples are afraid and what do they say they say save us lord we are perishing they're looking at the thunder clouds they're looking at the storm and they say to jesus lord save us we are perishing and jesus looks at his disciples and he says why are you afraid O ye of little faith. In other words, you've seen many miracles up to this point. Why are you afraid even now? Then Jesus arose and rebukes the wind and the sea. And what's the result? There was a great calm. And after this great calm, in verse 27 of Matthew 8, and the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this? that even winds and sea obey him. What kind of man that with the word can calm the storm? Jesus is the king who calms that storm. He's not a pauper. He's the king. And it would behoove all of us to treat Jesus as the king, not the pauper. He has full authority over all, including storms. Hey, I understand that many of us are fearful and we're going through great and difficult times. We're going through difficult times financially, emotionally, spiritually, in all sorts of other ways. But we cannot forget where our hope lies. The source of our hope, the source of our joy, the source of our salvation. We cannot forget that. The Lord. See, if your hope 
is in money, you will be greatly discouraged. If your hope is in the government, you'll be greatly discouraged, maybe even depressed. If your hope is in your family or in your education or in your career or in your job, it's just a matter of time before one of those items or one of those people let you down and you're discouraged and depressed. Some of us have already experienced that. If that's you, you're looking for peace in all the wrong places. The peace that passes all understanding comes from the Prince of Peace. And the Prince of Peace is Jesus Christ. You need Jesus. We need Jesus. I need Jesus. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus. Not the things of this world. And if that's us, that we put our hope in things that fade away, that are futile, that are foolish, we need to repent and trust in the Lord. See, the beautiful thing about God's amazing sovereign grace is that grace is defined as unmerited favor. See, what we deserve is God's judgment. What we deserve is judgment for our sins. What we deserve is to be cast in hell for all of eternity, if we're to be absolutely honest with ourselves. But yet, because of God's grace, saving grace through Jesus Christ, God doesn't treat our sins as they deserve. But God treated his son on our behalf the way that we should have been treated. The full condemnation and judgment of God. And so if you trust in him, you're forgiven by God. You may be thinking here, I grew up in the church. Or I was raised in church. I was born in church. I heard the gospel a million times. Well, you need to hear the gospel a million more times. If you're honest with yourself, you're going to fail God as soon as you walk out these doors by sinning against him, by disobeying his word. And if you're a Christian, his mercies are fresh and new each and every day. You need to hear that. His mercies are fresh and new. Not every other week or on the Sabbath year or the year of Jubilee. We would be greatly discouraged and depressed if that was true. But his mercies are fresh and new each and every day. Praise God. Don't get tired of God's grace for you and for me. Yes, we're going to sin against God, but repent and trust in Him. He will receive you all over again. Isn't that beautiful, God's grace? Psalm 144, this is for the Christian. 144 verse 7 says this, Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters, from the hand of foreigners. Psalm 144 is a psalm of David. David is not drowning in water, but he is describing water as enemy again. And the enemies have surrounded him. His enemies are persecuting him. And what does David say? David blesses God as the rock who subdues his enemies. David is asking for rescue from the hand of many foreigners or many enemies. So King David's hope is in the power of God. King David's hope is in the power of God. In other words, the God of Israel is David's God. And we need to be reminded that the God of Israel is our God. And that when we are going through difficulties and trials and tribulations, we need to go to our God. Is He your God? Is He our God? We should say yes. You know, many of us feel like King David. Lord, help me. I'm in sin again. I'm in mess. I'm in a mess again. I'm in trouble again. Lord, in your mercy, hear my cry. Be merciful to me again. 
Show me the beauty of Christ again. Help me to repent of my sins again. Help me to trust in your Son again. Help me to commit my life to you again and again and again. Praise God that His mercies are fresh and new each and every day. And I understand that we live in a cursed world. I understand that our employer gives us a difficult time because we love Jesus. I understand that our co-workers make fun of us and persecute us. They make our lives difficult. They love making us angry and frustrated. Why? Because simply we love Jesus. We love Jesus. They despise us because we esteem King Jesus. We hold him near and dear to our hearts. They hate God. They hate God. They hate God. But because of God's grace, we're no longer there. Because of God's grace, we are here. And when the world hates us and persecutes us, we must remember that used to be us. And we need to pray for them. We need to pray for them. Maybe you're overwhelmed by this sinful and evil generation. Maybe you're discouraged, downcast, depressed, melancholy. Remember God. Your God, my God, our God. Remember Him. You may think that He's abandoned you. Think again. The Lord does not abandon His people. Yes, we sin against God and our sin drives us away from His presence like Genesis chapter 3. But because of God's grace, that grace should drive us into the presence of our God. Our hope is in God. Our hope is not, not in the things of this world. You know, last Tuesday, millions of people went to go vote. Many people were happy because I voted for the right person. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. And the official results came out that so-and-so took office or so-and-so stayed in office. And now we're depressed. Now we're discouraged. Now we're hopeless. We feel helpless. It's because your eyes are on the things below. Fix your eyes on the things above where Christ reigns and rules. He rules right now. You know what? We should always be a people who votes for righteousness. The Bible's very clear in Proverbs. Righteousness exalts what? A nation. To be right means you understand what God requires of us. His word. His law. His commands. But we must be reminded we must be reminded at the end of the day, God rules and reigns. At the beginning of the day, God rules and reigns. You know what? To be more open with you, it doesn't change the way I pastor. It doesn't change the way I preach. It doesn't change the way I love my wife and love my children. It doesn't change the way I serve you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. I speak on behalf of the pastoral team. Brothers, does it change the way we serve others? No. Because why? Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in God. Psalm 93, verse 4, the question becomes, what is greater than the roar of an ocean and the thunders of a surging sea? What is greater than all that? We understand we live in a broken and cursed world, an evil world, an evil generation. The answer is and the answer will always be Yahweh is our Lord and God. Why? Because He's mighty. He's majestic. He's upon high. Fix your eyes upon Him. He's greater and He is all. The Lord reigns gloriously powerfully, eternally, and triumphantly. And now number five, he reigns in truth and holiness. Verse five says, 
Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. God's decrees is also translated as God's testimonies. We're talking about solemn statements. In all of God's statements, solemn statements are worthy of our trust because the text says, trustworthy. Because God cannot lie. God is holy. God is true. God is truthful. God loves us. And because he loves us, he's revealed his word to us. He's given us his word. He's given us Christ. He's given us his Holy Spirit. We have all we need for faith and the Christian life. But when the Bible talks about referring to decrees, this is the language of plans and counsels and purposes. And in reform circles, when we use the word decree, we're talking about God, his divine determination. What God has decreed will happen. What God said will happen. But in this context, it's nuanced a little bit differently in Psalm 93. The word decree is connected to God's law. The word decree is connected to God's law. I know that's challenging to see, so bear with me. We have to take into account in this verse the word holiness. That's the Hebrew word kodesh. Kodesh means holy, separated, otherness, apartness separateness, sacredness. And so holiness befits your house. The idea here is not that the temple, the Jerusalem temple, would be rebuilt and holiness would be in the temple. It actually goes way beyond that. It goes way beyond that. It's more than a physical building. It's the people who make up the building. The people comprise the temple. The people comprise the temple. God's people is the true temple. And God's people are to be holy. If you're a Christian, you are called to be holy. You're not allowed to live any way you want to live. Pastor Rollo, that surely sounds like legalism. Is it legalism? If God says, thou shalt not lie. Because you could take God's law and throw it out the window and become an antinomianism or antinomian, and say, I can live any way I want to live. If you're to be honest with the Bible and read the Bible properly, you cannot live any way you want to live. What you're saying to the world is this, I'm a follower of Jesus. Jesus owns me. I submit to his life, his lordship, his kingship, and therefore I must live in a way that's honoring and pleasing to who? To him can't live any way you want. And I'm not promoting legalism either. But the way to holiness, I'm talking about practical holiness, the way to practical holiness is revealed through God's law. And God's law is worthy of trust. I'm not referring to how a person is forgiven. We're not talking about that. We're talking about when a person is already forgiven, how are they to live? How are they to live? We're talking about practical holiness. And we see an example of this in Psalm 19, verse 7. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Here it goes. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Testimony, decree of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That's what the psalmist says. That the law of the Lord is righteous. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. All of this language is synonymous for God's law which is God's decree, which is God's testimony. God's special revelation to humanity is revealed through God's law. God's desire and command for God's people is to be holy. How does God relate to God's people? He reveals it to them. How are they to 
live for him and act for him and serve him is through his revealed law. The law shows what God requires of us, this vertical position. We're not to have any other gods. There's only one God. But also the law shows us our horizontal position, how you and I as brothers and sisters in Christ are to treat each other. And how are we to treat each other? In a holy way. What does it mean to live in a holy way? Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not be jealous. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. That's how you love your neighbor. By living a holy life. How do you live a holy life? Is applying the word of God. In particular, the law of God. So God, in his law, revealed to his people, shows us God's holiness, how we relate to him, and how we're to relate to each other. In conclusion, again, the greatest, one of the greatest hymns I've ever sang in my entire life is this lead on, O King Eternal. But in stanza number three, he says this. The writer says, Lead on, O King Eternal. We follow not with fears, for gladness, gladness breaks like morning wherever your face appears. Your cross is lifted over us. We journey in its light, meaning Jesus has come. The crown awaits the conquest. Lead on, O God of might. God is the king. God is eternal. He leads, we follow. Whatever he says in his word, we do. So the Lord is sovereign. Psalm 93 is really about God's sovereignty. That he rules and reigns and how he will always, always, always suppress those who are evil and wicked and those who are evil and wicked, even though it seems that in our lifetimes they're getting away with murder, they will be judged in the end. The day of judgment is coming. And so the Lord suppresses the destructive forces in this world, and those who think they're going to get away with evil will be judged. But if you understand God's sovereignty biblically, that should encourage all of us. When the world is chaotic, when the world is a mess, and your personal life is like a dark thunderstorm that's hovering over your head, and you're discouraged and depressed because nothing is going your way, that storm should drive you to your knees and back to Jesus. Evil people and evil kings will not win in the end. God raises kings. God brings down kings. God is ultimately in control. This doesn't mean, as a church, we can live any way we want. That doesn't mean that we are to be passive and be laid back and not influence others for Christ. No, we're to do what's right before the Lord and before others. Even though we live in a world that we may never, I don't know, maybe we have and I'm just unaware of it, but maybe we'll live in a land where there's no Christians in office. I'm talking about God-fearing Christians. I'm talking about born-again Christians. I'm talking about real Christians. Maybe we'll live in a land that's like that. Maybe that land is already here. But should we not want to live in a land that's righteous? We should. Do we want to see murder in the land? I hope as Bible-believing Christians we say no. But... If that be the case, we should want leaders, even though they may not be saved and born again, they affirm what Nebuchadnezzar said and did. And he says this in Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. Nebuchadnezzar says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm the man, I'm the king. Look at this vast kingdom and all of the credit and praise should go to who? Nebuchadnezzar. And then the Lord judged him, made him to eat and act like an animal with long nails. And now his reason has returned to me, to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar says this, and I, 
blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And His kingdom endures from generation to generation. There's no biblical evidence that King Hezekiah was truly born again and a Christian. But if that be the case, should we not want to be in a land that's righteous and that our God fears and God seekers, if I can use that language, who say what Nebuchadnezzar said, for God's domain is an everlasting dominion and God's kingdom endures from generation to generation. In other words, God is king. We should want to live in a land that way, like that. So the Lord our God reigns gloriously, powerfully, eternally, triumphantly, and in truth and holiness. In sermon and a sentence, our God reigns right now, and he's worthy of our trust, your trust. He's worthy of your worship, and he's worthy of your holy living. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are the true and living God who is sovereign, who's fully in control, has all rule and authority, who has all power to accomplish your good and perfect will and purposes. Lord, help us to do what your text says. Lord, forgive us where we have failed you and sinned against you. We thank you for your mercies, which are fresh and new each and every day. We thank you for Christ, our great and wonderful Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.